All right, welcome back. Hello, everyone. This is episode two of Luluverse, and last time we discussed my political viewpoints in fair detail and how concern over polarization informs them. But in many areas of politics, this is something I didn't really touch on last episode, someone's moral beliefs may significantly influence their particular political inclinations. And there are certain moral universals in the modern day, or I guess I should say beliefs that are so common that people who don't believe in, in these moral beliefs are negligible in number. Um, and uh, some of these might include the belief that cold-blooded murder is wrong, for example. Uh, it's going to be the case that the more general the belief, the more common it is. And even geographic localities that have cultural differences, serious cultural differences with one another, are going to have some of these um, moral universals. But nonetheless, uh, in Asia, Japan and South Korea have much more similar cultures to the United States and Western Europe than China does. And a, a cultural framework is also going to play a big part in people's moral views. And part of that is also that religion is somewhat geographically localized, even though certain religions are very widely found. Practically all adherents of Abrahamic religions believe in a reason, reasonably similar basic set of morals as denoted by their faiths. And even though there's significant variation in these beliefs, and even between Abrahamic religions, there's still to be found a lot more commonalities in the moral beliefs between these people than randomly selected individuals. But that's actually enough moral talk for now. Because while all of that is, is very interesting, this episode isn't about morals. It's about my religious and spiritual beliefs, or lack thereof, as we'll get to. But I do want to quickly say that moral beliefs are pretty strongly tied with religious and spiritual beliefs, I think with the exception of the aforementioned universal ideas, so I don't want to pretend like it doesn't really have a place here, but uh, it could be a separate topic all on its own, because it's also very interesting. So let's get into it then. I'll start a little bit with my religious background. So I was raised in a household of loosely practicing Catholics, and usually go to church on holidays, such as Easter and Christmas, and maybe a Palm Sunday here and there. And I, I, I participated in First Communion and Confirmation. These are some religious ceremonies in the Catholic faith. But even while I was being confirmed, which was, I think, in freshman year of high school or so, um, my certainty of the truth of these, these beliefs, or even my conviction that I had any, any reason to believe in Catholicism as opposed to any other religion had already faded, if those... Uh, if that conviction existed in the first place, I should say. Now, as you'll recall, I'm a math major, and I'm studying it at a pretty high level with plans to go into grad school. And maybe as part of my education, since it's what I've been doing for years on end every day now, or maybe because of my personal uh, predisposition, I'm a person that really values logical consistency and rigor, and in particular the practice of carefully justifying big claims and being able to get into the rational nitty-gritty when you need to. But before I continue, I really want to stress an important point. Um, first off, there's nothing inherently wrong with being religious and believing in any faith, and religion has done and is doing a lot of good for the world. So I'm going to refer to a study here, uh, an ongoing study at the University of Indiana called uh, the Philanthropy Study po uh, Panel, has demonstrated in their own words a, quote, substantial connection between religion and giving, 
end quote. And this also shouldn't exactly be shocking if any if anyone is religious or knows religious people. It just tends to be the case, at least in my experience and the experience of most people around me. And uh, there are some people that go out of their way to disparage religion and religious people while ignoring the tremendous good it does for the world. And it's not all amazing. Religion has been the root cause for some atrocities in history. But I want to make it clear that I'm not one of the people who will go out of their way to disparage religion. If you get peace of mind from religion, if it brings a sense of community or profundity to your life, then more power to you, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, this series is just documenting my personal beliefs and no one else's. And I don't mean to challenge people's beliefs when they're minding their own business. And there are also definitely logical formulations of religious beliefs. Although, in my experience, honestly, at the end of the day, uh, the entire reason to believe in them instead of not doing so is going to end up either being personal or admittedly overtly predicated on faith or belief without explicit evidence. All that being said, uh, let's get into my actual beliefs now. So I try not to assign any religious labels to myself, in part because uh, there's tons of contrast even within religious labels. Nobody has identical beliefs to another person, um, and especially so in religion, because there are so many different religions and so much variation within certain religions of beliefs and different interpretations and all that kind of thing. But I'd probably be conventionally described as an agnostic. So I'm not convinced of the existence of a god or gods, and I'm going to follow the conventional definition here of uh, infinitely powerful, omniscient, eternal, and sometimes omnibenevolent god as well. And I acknowledge the possibility of such a being or being's existence, and I even hope it to be true, because I, I very much fear death, going from life to potentially nothingness or oblivion. But nonetheless, I can see no reason to believe or even remotely suspect that consciousness continues after biological death and true clinical brain death. And I, I also want to address near-death experiences here by saying that uh, while they're probably very real, they are in fact very real to the individual, I think that the most likely explanation of their is, is that they're products of intense hallucinations that come about somehow by being in a life-threatening or potentially inescapable situation. And the reason I suspect this to be the case is that other explanations usually require some kind of supra-neurological reasoning that begins to become super physically vague or unfalsifiable or something along those lines. And it's also sometimes the case that extremely potent hallucinogens, such as psilocybin, can induce a near-death experience-like state, particularly on the so-called bad trips. So the over and these drugs have overwhelming power uh, to make permanent changes in people's lives. So th there were some clinical studies, I think, uh, before psilocybin was not considered ethical, that seemed to indicate that uh, smoking, uh, the reduction of smoking in in pathological smokers, was. I mean, just unbelievably effective just from an experience using psilocybin, not even necessarily directed to, to fix that problem. And these changes mirror the consequences of near-death experience survivors just because they tend to be so profound. Although it's worth pointing out that near-death experiences share some commonalities between each other that might not be found in, in strong hallucinogenics. So there, you know, there, there are tons of different kinds of trips with psilocybin, I'm sure. But for near-death experience, it's very common to 
have a tunnel of light described or flashing memories or dilation of time or third person observation of the room and 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 the like and i'm no expert on near-death experiences and i'd certainly like to hear what an expert has to say about how to explain them but i'm not um i'm not willing to to examine explanations that are unfalsifiable i can only just say they're technically possible because we cannot prove them to be impossible but you did catch me saying that i tend to be less likely to believe in those explanations and and that all goes back to my kind of fundamental core as a person that it bothers me they can't be rigorously tested and i explain my inherent need for things to be able to be rigorously tested for me to believe in them uh, unless i basically have to believe in them to do anything at all and when I say that, I'm referring to moral axioms, but we'll talk a little bit more about that in the next episode, or perhaps in the future. I'm not sure when I'll talk more about morality. Anyways, I feel that I want to get a little bit into into more reasons why I'm not necessarily convinced that a god or gods exist. I feel that our modern understanding of physics paints the entire picture of the universe that can be painted from beginning, the Big Bang, to end. And there's no need for an omnipotent being anywhere therein, necessarily. But this is a frequently debated point, so I figured I'd lay out the case for why this is by addressing some of the most common arguments that I've seen, which suggest a god or gods are needed to explain the origin of the universe. So, firstly, I want to just get this out of the way. Why do we assume that everything has to have a comprehensible explanation? to us. Now I know I said that we can explain the entire picture of the universe, but I did use the words that can be painted, and that was very careful wording for a reason. What I formally mean is that anything predating the Big Bang or outside the observable universe is unobservable. And assuming anything even did predate the Big Bang, or that the idea of predating the Big Bang even makes sense at all, um, and, and physics time is described as beginning at the instant of the Big Bang. It, it just it doesn't really make sense, at least mathematically, or for any of our kinds of understanding to describe it otherwise. Now, in, rega- in regards to God and the universe forming, I've seen that a point of religious apologist is often a so-called fine-tuning argument, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that. But I'm bound to make some oversimplifications, so bear with me. And I want to I wanna say again that I... I'm not trying to disparage religious people in any way, and I'm not biased to believe this for any reason. It's just the way I see things, uh, as far as I can tell. It could be the case, but again, as far as I can tell. I'm also going to be referring to a University of Stanford philosophy website that's full of citations that does the argument proper justice, and that's linked in the description. But my understanding is that the idea is as follows. Um, There are certain physical constants in the universe such as the strength of gravity or, or how much gravitational force acts on a fixed mass at a fixed distance. Um, and, and there are hordes and hordes of these physical constants, um, the speed of light, for another example, that are so precisely determined that incomprehensibly minute changes in them. So even one part in the 60th decimal of some of these, which is a trillion, 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 trillionth of, you know, of one, which is crazy, would uh, incomprehensibly small, like I said, would not have allowed life to form, and in some cases, even the universe as we know it to, to come about. And there are many cases of these extremely sensitive constants existing in such a way to support our universe, 
and the formation of any life at all. And when I say any life at all, I mean not just DNA-based, but any reasonable definition of life, because some changes in these constants would result in universes lacking sufficient complexity for anything to be called life. Like chemistry for anything beyond basic compounds that we can already see might not even be well-defined if we make certain changes. And there's also the matter of, uh, of seeing how human life and the ability to reason came about in a miraculous manner, given that minute changes in DNA could result in dramatically different life. We're unrelated to apes only in single digits of DNA percentages. And this is conventionally presented as a different argument, though, by apologists. It's often called the argument from design. And we'll probably touch on that a little bit too. But again, the amount of things sensitive to extremely small changes that would affect the formation of life as we know it are innumerable. So I'm not going to say too much more about it. Uh, I just think that um, the idea of this argument is that assuming all of these were rolled independently, all these parameters, there is no way that we randomly landed on an assortment of them that could have uh, pro provided for life, and instead that a god or god interacted and intervened in order to create the universe. Because by all means, what we would conventionally consider as ridiculously lucky, like landing a million heads in a row, um, would absolutely pale in comparison. It would be like comparing, I don't know, a grain of sand to the earth <laughs> in terms of how much more unlikely it would be if these things could, could roll independently. But um, nonetheless, um, there are a few assumptions that we have to make implicitly to make this argument. And the first is to, to assume that these important numbers were in fact randomly chosen. And this is completely necessary because if it's not the case, then there need not be a miraculous explanation for the universe uh, to form as we see it. But it's not necessarily the case, I would say, that there's a cosmic slot machine endlessly rolling on equally likely physical parameters and properties. We didn't have to get mirac miraculously lucky necessarily. This is my main problem with the fine-tuning argument as I understand it. It creates a false dichotomy. That is, it assumes either we got basically infinitesimally lucky or God did it. But it could very well be that some kind of currently unknown law prevents universe formation in the first place if these, don't, if, if these parameters don't land in a way similar to our universe. In other words, all of these physical constant, constants need not be independent. And even though they're extremely sensitive uh, to changes, there's no indication that uh, it could ever even be any other way. And uh, in other words, that changes the amount of possible outcomes, more or less, on our slot machine. It's akin to reducing the number of faces on a, on a dice, um, as I see it. There, there's just too much unknown to be accepted in presuming that these hypersensitive constants are, in fact, uh, so finely tuned. But we can certainly have a pretty good idea of what a universe would look like with different versions of these constants, thanks to physics. That said, we have no idea if it's possible that all such universes uh, can form, or assuming that they can, whether or not they're equally likely to form. We have no idea. We just know what a universe would look like if some of these things were different. So I, I definitely want to address that as well. And there's also the issue of defining lucky. So we often choose to assign the label of lucky only to outcomes we want, even if all outcomes are equally probable. So I'm going to go back to the one million heads in a row example for flipping a, a fair two-sided coin. 
And most people would consider that unbelievably lucky, even though it's equally likely that we get any sequence of 1 million coin flips. It's just as likely we got 500,000 tails and then 500,000 heads or whatever, you know, a head, a tail, a head, a tail, and so on, till we get to a million. Anything you can think of, they're all equally likely. Yet we only really care about the 1 million heads in a row, or perhaps we might only care about the 1 million heads in a row. And uh, even granting all the assumptions that I mentioned above, we define life-supporting to be a lucky outcome of this cosmic slot machine because we're predisposed to do so, since it's the only outcome we care about. And honestly, that's fair. But applying that reasoning over and over beyond the formation of the universe, such as the formation of life, to DNA-based life, to single-celled life, to human life, it becomes a little bit selective just to support the argument, I think. And it's not necessarily a logical fallacy, though. It's, it's really just food for thought on how we should define lucky and when something should be um, considered a miracle or not. It's not a logical fallacy because if we grant the premises of the argument that the physical constants, even one of them, were rolled randomly, it would already make it miraculous that we exist just because the, the numbers are just so insane uh, in those cases. What if we actually are unbelievably lucky? Is that compelling for the existence of a god or gods? Well, the issue with this sort of analysis and stacking probabilities in order to make a particular outcome seem super unlikely is that it de facto acknowledges um, that we are already incomprehensibly lucky to exist. What I mean by that is your existence, biologically. The next sperm cell in line when you were conceived could have been as different from you as you are from your sibling. And how many sperm cells were there? How many eggs were there? How many chances were there at conception? How many ancestors did you have? How many sperm cells were there when they were conceived? If you want to stack probabilities this way and define my exact existence as the only outcome I care about, then I may be even luckier than the fine-tuning of the physical constants um, just to exist biologically. And uh, we don't, while we don't typically think of getting a million heads in a row in our lives as likely or possible, according to this analysis, we're an effectively infinite number of times more lucky just to even exist in the first place. But apologists actually do address this issue by just tying the fine-tuning of the universe and the fine-tuning of life together. And uh, the physical constants fall under the fine-tuning argument and the life happening in such a way that our current you know, condition of the universe is real that's often called the argument from design. So, you know, the, there's not necessarily any logical fallacies from what we've established so far. But uh, the real point is that supposing we are unbelievably lucky, that that's the only way it could be. We wouldn't exist to perceive our misfortune had the universe not formed in the way that it did. So there's no inherent reason why it couldn't be the case that we got so infinitesimally lucky, even though such things trump improbabilities that we can think of by an ungodly amount. Um, still, there isn't a need for God or gods to explain the origin of the universe. All we can say is that we might have gotten extremely lucky. So lucky that normally we would not even consider the possibility that the outcome is legitimate. But nonetheless, the argument from design, um, or I, I'm sorry, the fine-tuning argument rather hinges on this. And I guess the, the fine-tuning argument or I'm sorry, and I guess the argument from design also hinges on that as well. But uh, it could only be that way, or else we wouldn't exist. We don't even know how many times the cosmic slot machine was spinning, assuming it was spinning in such a way that the argument 
once. It might have been enough times that we should expect millions of our universes to have formed before they actually did. Who knows? Uh, it becomes very vague very, very quickly, I think. And still, even if we make all the assumptions we want to lower the chances of our universe forming naturally as much as finitely possible, there's still the requirement to argue that it is more probable a god or gods intervened than that random chance. And I do not see any compelling argument for the probability that any such being exists, even if it is effectively infinitesimal, because you have to go from zero to non-zero probability of a god existing. And uh, it also need not be the case that God was the one rigging the cosmic slot machine. Why couldn't it have been some kind of other being? And uh, typically this is where we would fall into what's called an infinite regression. So if X being created our universe, then who created X being? And if X being created Y being, then who created X being? And so on and so forth ad infinitum. And while this may seem like a problem, I'd argue that most conceptions of God run into the same problem, namely in the eternal feature. To suggest that a being can exist timelessly also admits the possibility that this property applies to the universe or universes or whatever you want to define to encapsulate absolutely everything. Uh, all in all, it comes down to needing to justify the likelihood of God's existence. And I think that that's really no different from justifying his existence with certainty in the first place, since both at the end of the day, if you're going to talk about probabilities, require a physical or mathematical or logical explanation. So for the fine-tuning argument, I will give up the ground that it results in the possibility of justifying God's existence by arguing his existence and intervention in our creation is more probable than it happening randomly or via any other means. But I don't think this does anything to prove his existence, mostly because of the via any means part. Uh, there's just too much that we don't know, too many assumptions we have to make. And many other arguments in favor of God's existence that I've seen hinge on accepting these improbabilities in an attempt to demonstrate that any other approach is absurd. Yet they commonly don't do anything to actually establish God, or God with the desired properties on top of that, but just God in the first place, instead of uh, some kind of natural alternative. Until I run across such an argument, I'm not going to be convinced that God exists through this kind of procedure. And I'm not saying that a sound argument for God's existence isn't out there. I just haven't seen one that doesn't run into these same kinds of problems, except for perhaps the, the moral argument, or arguments that aren't uh, non-teleological, shall we say. And many of these um, non-teleological arguments, or even the teleological arguments themselves, invoke logical laws, like the Kalam cosmological argument that hinges on the law of cause and effect, for example, that... Um, that exist only within our universe. So these logical laws exist within our universe, yet must be applied to the universe itself in order to flow most of the time. And again, it's often going to be the case that there will be nothing to stop us from believing in natural alternatives to God. And so far as I can tell, that uh, logical extrapolation to things within the universe applying to the entire universe is a form of improper induction, I think. And as an aside, though, I do want to acknowledge that many more logically versed people than I, logically versed philosophers, have spoken on the subject of religion and the existence of God, people like Thomas Aquinas. So I want to stress the point that while I'm not convinced that God exists, I'm also convinced that he doesn't, I'm sorry, I'm also not convinced that he does not exist with the desired properties aforementioned. 
It is the case in my experience, though, that the arguments I've seen attempting to justify either which way tend to fall, uh, fall down pretty radically or are just unprovable completely. And some people would say that's, what's faith, that's what faith is about, but an easy exercise kind of throws that idea away. It's going to demonstrate that I think that kind of thinking is quite absurd. We are not agnostics about leprechauns. Nobody has probably ever seen a leprechaun or evidence of them. And we can go to the ends of rainbows and find no pot of gold. So we think to ourselves that leprechauns do not exist, although we can't easily prove the non-existence of things based on lack of evidence. It really comes down to um, depending on your definition of proof. But um, we can try to prove statements of non-existence by contradiction. So supposing that leprechauns did exist, we should expect pots of gold and green-dressed, red-haired men giving out cereal. <laughs> we don't see any of that, though. So we believe, based on what we can gather, that it's not necessarily true that leprechauns exist. In fact, we believe that leprechauns don't exist. It's very different than acknowledging the possibility. But this doesn't technically eliminate the possibility that leprechauns exist. Yet, we don't consider ourselves agnostic about leprechauns. So going just from faith-based, I think, is, is a little crazy. There's kind of no limit to it. And we can apply the same kind of thought to religion. The difference is religion doesn't give you testable hypotheses. At least it doesn't these days. It did in the past. The ancient Greeks believed gods were responsible for physical phenomena we now know have no divinity in them. But nowadays, most religions don't give us any pot of gold assumptions to work with. The reason why is because historically they've pretty much failed every single time. That, that's been the case, from what I can gather. But I want to take a step back to begin with. Logical thought and the reasons to trust rationality are axiomatic. They're based on unprovable assumptions to begin with. Why should we value logic? I think it would be absurd for society as we know it and the world and for finding meaning as a human if we just throw that out. So we can be convinced to accept these logical axioms. Uh, nonetheless, though, why do we? Well, some apologists have also suggested that we need to find justification in order to use logic or to trust our thoughts at all. Yet they invoke logic in making this suggestion in the first place. It's sort of a form of circular reasoning. There's basically no reason to listen to any argument ever if you just throw out logic at all. And um, the, the problem is there's, there's no way to convince anyone for any reason about anything if we don't accept some of these axioms. All in all, there are too many different arguments for or against God to enumerate or address, and all have varying levels of detail that some of which I would probably struggle with to immediately dispense with. But part of that might be verbal manipulation of the arguments, and part of that might be that these are not at all simple or trivial topics. And I don't want to give the impression that I'm presenting it that way. Like I said, I'm bound to have made oversimplifications, and there are rational formulations of religion. But again, these are my thoughts and no one else's. This is a documentation series. It's not meant to convince anyone. I could totally be wrong about everything I just said. And it's just how I see things. But to wrap up this episode, I want to go back to how I said, I hope some of the religions are true. Why do I say that? I'm a person who's afraid of death. 
it's not debilitating where I think about it constantly, but the fear of death and not dying, but actual death is severe enough that it's harmful to my mental health if I think about it in depth. I don't want to stop existing. And I'll grant that uh, there might be conditions under which nobody would want to be conscious because we're biological organisms. We can all feel pain and the worst physical torture imaginable for each individual. I doubt that anyone would want to consistently exist in that. But I, in my life, do not want to die. Nothingness and the idea of a permanent cessation of consciousness is scary to me. I don't fear the time before I was conceived, though. I didn't exist then, and perhaps I wouldn't exist after death, so why fear it? I can't really give a good answer to that other than it's a very subjective thing. Eternal bliss and incomprehensible goodness would be a great alternative, though. But we can see neurologically that bits of people fade over time. Dementia patients lose their sense of selves, their memories, their knowledge, eventually even their ability to speak in, a, in an understandable way in some cases. And what they do retain, though, is a fascinating area of study. It's not too relevant here. I just thought I'd throw that in. But we pretend that it makes sense somehow that even though we can visibly see people fade bit by bit, losing themselves, that after death all is well and everything is together and, and whole again for some of these people. And, and we're kind of ignoring the brain's influence on someone's personality. Uh, brain damage can radically change a person, and that is very evident. Uh, an analogy of the soul and life after death, to me, is like saying a fire has a destination or purpose after it's been put out, and it doesn't just cease to exist. And while that may not be the best analogy because the brain and consciousness are very complicated in the first place, uh, to believe this without religious inspiration is hard. And to me, it's the most compelling reason to have some form of spirituality because I'm so afraid that this analogy could apply to our own minds. But while that's somewhat of a somber note, that is the end of this episode. And in the future, we're probably going to explore morality. That's the plan for now. I'll explain a little bit more about how I feel on the topics that I didn't get to touch on here. But that does mostly capture my religious and spiritual beliefs. So that's the end of this episode. And thank you for tuning in. Until next time.